Welcome to the Broken Pie Chart Podcast, episode 190. I'm your host, Eric Moore, and with me is my semi-permanent co-host, CEO of Zega Financial, Jay Pestercelli. Jay, you made it to a, a round number. I don't know how that happened. Must be a mistake. 190. 190. I don't listen. It's uh, things are happening in this this year that are unusual. So I made yeah. 190. Well, all right. Well, let's get right into it for the uh, for the folks. I know we'll we'll have some some recommendations later. I got to tell you though, Jay, it's we're still in that bad news is good news, good news, bad news. But every morning, and by the way, on the West Coast, I actually watch the European Open because Bloomberg has that. It's on, I think, 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock at night. But this UK business, I got to tell you, it's it's kind of interesting where from afar, they announced they're going to lower corporate taxes and the bond market and everybody kind of gets all up in arms about it. I mean, Jay, I think it's it's sort of a misunderstanding of of what raising or lowering taxes are but do you have any thoughts on this? And I'll I'll kind of give you some history. Well, right. I mean, it's it. By the way, I'm I'm also a uh, a viewer of uh, Bloomberg for the uh, I don't always catch the European Open, but uh, certainly when I get up early in the U.S., I catch the European markets. I would tell you that um, it clearly affects our futures, right? It clearly impacts what's going on uh, in the U.S. market pre market, and certainly for the first hour or so, two hours of the day. Um, I just don't. I'm not. You know, my two cents on this are that it's kind of a litmus test for what's going on in the U.S., but they have some problems that we have, you know, really are not experienced, I would say, in the U.S. Uh, and so I think it's hard for people to kind of connect the dots with, OK, does it matter to me that there's a pension problem in the U.K. or what? I think so. There's a little bit of, a, I think, a little uh, um Apathy is not the right word, but lack of interest in the U.S. markets for it. But I'm with you that there are some reading of the tea leaves that we could make from this and watching when a government uh, and, a, and a government agency like the Bank of England can be influenced by financial markets. And I think that's what we saw this morning, Friday the 14th, when we saw it, where uh, you know, we had some changes, right? The chancellor, which is like our Fed chairman, was uh, fired or asked to quit. And, uh, you know, they're changing some government policies because of the market volatility and interest rates. So to me, that's where it kind of matters. But, you know, what, but I think you've got a little more detail of what's going on there to help people understand, you know, what the dynamics are. Yeah, I mean, it, it sort of reminds me, and when it, whenever things are more volatile or fall standard deviations for those who don't know what that is moving a lot a lot more than people expect sometimes things break i hearken back to 1994 when orange county went bankrupt and they were essentially selling uh short-term bonds to to buy long-term bonds when the yield curve inverted and everything went up uh, you know their, their pensions went up from afar, what's going on is they have, uh, they call it LDI, or, um, but basically just matches up liabilities uh, against uh, you know, returns. And, and if you know on a pension system, you're going to have to pay out a bunch of stuff, a bunch of money. How's that for a technical term uh, in the future? That's yeah, good. A bunch, bunch of money. money. Bunch of money. And That's good. You need to earn enough on the existing assets or you need to contribute to it. And so what it sounds like happened was 
what they do is they take some growth assets, but they also have some some fixed income assets, uh, assets, gilts, which is their version of the U.S. Treasury. And there's some leverage there. And so normally you say, well, you know, bonds don't really move that much and they're relatively safe. But when bonds move enough, uh, bonds can wind up in losses. And so when those things went uh, went down as rates spiked, collateral calls went out. And so it sounded like, you know, they had a little bit of a spiral there. But yeah, I mean, it. it the one thing I will say too is that it seems like the Bank of England now has, you know, the BOE put, meaning if rates, gilts, which is their treasuries again, get up uh, around 5%, they'll come in and buy bonds. And by buying bonds, they want to have bonds uh, go up and yields go down, which sort of fixes some of the stuff. But Jay, the other thing I wanted to bring up is there's a lot of talk about this. Oh, was the fact they were going to do corporate tax cuts. I went back and I looked, and I think there's a fundamental misunderstanding sometimes of, of what tax cuts or tax increases really do. Remember, if, if you don't want something, uh, one of the things politicians do is they tax it and you get less of it. At least that's the intent. But I went back and I said, let me look at federal receipts as a percent of GDP. In other words, how much tax revenue to get in compared to what your GDP is. And then I looked at the top marginal tax rate. And believe it or not, yeah, folks, I mean, the, the top marginal rate was over 90% in looks like, you know, the 50s, early 60s. Doesn't mean everyone paid, you know, 90% of their money. It just means as the rates went up, the brackets went up. And over time, since World War I, which is really when, you know, uh, you had the, the increase in the federal tax rates and everything, you pretty much get about 17.5%. So, Irregardless of the tax rate, if you want to know how much you get in tax receipts, take 17.5% of your GDP. So, like, if you want more taxes, grow the economy. But I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the point you're trying to make, right? Like, tax rates really don't aren't the thing that drives uh, tax receipts. Percentage of GDP. I'm looking at your chart that you sent me ahead of the call. 17.5 seems to be the average, ranges between 15 to 20. So, Great. So you're right. You want to grow your your tax dollars, grow the economy, right? Cutting or increasing taxes doesn't seem to do very much for for it outside of that. So we'll see what happens with the UK. I think it's just an example of when stuff moves too quickly, too fast. Sometimes things get broken and there's a lot of assumptions that get made. When you have leverage, obviously that uh, that impacts things. But Anyway, we'll we'll move on from the uh, the tax discussion. We'll leave that for uh, other folks. I, I do want to get into a little bit about sort of the the Fed and you and I have talked before. Like, are they actually doing more harm than good? I want to bring something up though. One of the things that was cited for the increase in inflation was uh, you know supply side issues, supply side issues, everything from making things and shipping things. And one of the things I, I checked on recently were the, uh, and who doesn't check on this, it's the Shanghai to Los Angeles container freight benchmark rate per 40-foot box. That's a container that goes on a ship. And it's one of your favorite things, by the way. It's not the first <laughs> time you've brought it up. You love to talk about the 40-foot yeah, box. Yeah, uh, the, the book, The Box, is a great, great, uh, it's it's details the innovation, uh, world-changing innovation of, of the container shipping. Anyway, the rates are down, Jay, almost to where they were pre, 
2020. And when I say almost, uh, last check, they were $3,283 per container. They were under 2000 before 2020. But anyway, they're almost down. The other thing, too, container ships waiting outside. Oh, wait, just that's, that's down from $12,000, right? right? When that- yeah, let's not bury the lead. Talk about that, Jay. I mean, that's, that's important. Yeah, I mean, this is one of those things that, and we definitely talked about how, you know, the, this was one of the first hints of to, as to the supply chain issues uh, that have kind of been filtering their way through the economy, right, the last two years. Um, to drop from, you know, 12K per box down to 3,000, that's a nice decline. And it's, you know, you and I have talked about, you know, the I don't, maybe I don't want to jump ahead, but, you know, we've talked a lot about, you know, the things that impact inflation. This is one of those things, right? Getting the getting the goods into the U.S. was obviously one of the big issues. And uh, this is definitely showing positive improvement, dramatic positive improvement uh, uh, for, for that story. And it's really, it's been going down for the majority of 2022, but the last two or three months, I think it is notably uh, uh, accelerated the decline. Yeah, this is, this is a really big deal. And, and lest I don't want to get into the, the minutia of shipping container rates and stuff. Some, some people have longer term contract contracts. I think home is a home Depot. They actually rented a whole container ship. It might be home Depot, it might be somebody else. But Jay, the other thing we noticed too, is that the waiting times outside the port. So that was a, a big thing. CNBC would send one of the reporters out on a, a, a boat. They do a live spot. They show all the container ships. Uh, they have a, a graph. This is from J.P. Morgan uh, Equity Research Transportation Team and uh, Marine Data Exchange. But it's at anchor and on approach is down to January 20 levels. In other words, let me just you know break the news to you. Not a lot of people waiting right now. And within 25 miles of port, which is a new thing they started doing earlier this year, um, there's no ships waiting. And, and they used to be waiting like just stacked one after another. So this seems to be fixed. Like, remember we heard the news, Jay, oh, if you could just fix logistics and container shipping and pricing, everything would be good, right? That's, uh, that was it. And it's, uh, this, I, I, will, I will refrain from the sarcasm about, about the negotiations with the longshoremen. But listen, I think it, this was the thing that everybody, this was the thing that kicked off a lot of the inflation and supply chain concerns, no doubt about it. Yeah. Before we move on, Jay, uh, I will save recommendations for later, but The Box by uh, Mark Levinson, uh, that's that's worth a read if you're interested in business. And uh, All right. So let's talk about... All right. Let me, let me go somewhere else first. Today, we got retail sales out. And Jay, I always think it's kind of interesting where sometimes numbers come out and they are nominal and sometimes they are real. And of course, real just means adjusted for inflation or after the effect of inflation is factored in. And nominal just means whatever it is, not factoring that. I think retail sales this morning were worse than expected or better. I don't, I, you know, I, I lose track, Dave. It's better or worse, right? Uh, so they were, they were lower than expected, right? They were flat. The over the headline number was flat. Um, and then the expectation was to be up two tenths. So, you know, if you, Right. It's, it's a bad news was good news, I think, kind of a thing. I think. I mean, it's flip a coin. But one of the things I'll point out is the, the metric that this, this committee that declares recessions or not, uh, or not, I should say, I don't know why I made that plural, 
they look at real retail sales and real wholesale sales. They don't look at nominal. And Jay, from all accounts, I mean, it looks like, uh, I think I earlier said February, March of this year was when real retail sales topped out and they've been flat to a little bit declinish since I would say it's flat. That is something that they look at. I'm not saying this is going to be a recession, but um, I, it's just interesting that sometimes people, maybe it's when, it, when it's convenient, they use real versus nominal. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, the headline, like I was, uh, I saw it on CNBC this morning, the headline was, you know, hey, they've, you know, expecting it to be up, but, and that they came in flat. But, you know, the chart that you're showing here that I'm seeing that I'm sure you'll share is showing a decline, right? And so when you adjust for inflation, makes sense, flat, but take out the inflation should be on the way down. Yeah. I mean, this is the kind of thing that you're looking for to show that spending is, you know, starting to show some uh, uh, downdraft, right? I mean, that's kind of what the Fed is trying to create, right? They want to, get people to stop paying up for, uh, you know, for more expensive stuff and getting people to curb their spending. And retail sales is one of the things that they watch for that. And so for them, it's going in the right direction. Yeah. You want, they want bad news. They want people out of their houses, you know, having forced to sell their house out on the street, out of a job. That's sort of what the Fed wants right now. Right, Jay? Seems like it sometimes. <laughs> I, I, yeah, well, I, I don't think they want people on the street, uh, right? But they want people. I think it's more fair to say they want people to just stop paying up and use a little. Uh, you know, hey, don't you don't have to spend everything this month, right? Like, just stop paying extra for stuff. Use a little sensibility. You know, you've saved over the last two years because there's a lot of money floating around, and that's okay to keep saving, right? So, I if I was really putting it into context, I know that there's pundits saying the Fed is after your 401k. And as you've just taken it even farther, they want you out of the house. They just, listen, they want things to slow down a little bit, right? Slow down your spending. Um, I don't know if I've seen a lot of, you know, uh, a lot of evidence of that, especially, you know, travel. I've been on full planes, you know, all the last six months, every plane I'm on is full. So I'm not sure if it's really subsiding yet, but maybe retail sales is the first, you know, Maybe the canary in the coal mine there. I don't know. Yeah. And, and let's, let's go to the Fed for a second, because, Jay, I think there's some updated Fed funds probabilities. And oh, my gosh. Yeah, absolutely. After CPI just yesterday. Talk, talk about this one, Jay. I'll let you uh, introduce this one. Yeah. I mean, right. So the, the, the futures market uh, essentially prices in where the Fed will be uh, on certain dates. Right. And today, while we're floating around that uh, 300 to three and a quarter basis points is a Fed funds rate, you know, that the, this essentially will predict, you know, where uh, where the Fed is going to go. Right. Um, after yesterday, there was, you know, pretty much with, with the, the hotter than expected CPI number. That's the number that I'm referencing that came out. Uh, even the core. Right. The core continues to tick a little higher. Um, you know, the, the, the market pretty much locked in at least 75 basis points. There's a little bit of a, a little bit of an outsized bet at a hundred basis points for November 2nd, but that, you know, like 3% chance, 5% chance right now, it, the fed funds futures, 
right, are pricing in pretty much a lockstep at 75 basis points. I don't think that surprises anybody. There was a chance that it was only 50. That's gone after the CPI number we got yesterday. But the more the, the the surprise here, the change here was the December meeting thought was always, OK, they'll go 75 November and 50 in December. That has now changed that the most probable cause of uh, course of action is another 75. There's a 75 percent, 70 percent chance, 65 percent chance that they go 75 basis points in December. So that is ticked up. That, you know, obviously causes more. Uh, disruption in the uh, uh, in the bond market. Although yesterday was a very strange market day, right? So there's a little bit of a short squeeze going on that pushed the market notably higher. We had a three percent plus day, very strong day, giving it back on Friday today a little bit. But the point is, the projection of the futures tells us 75 is the most likely move in December, and then uh, then you're kind of another 25. The first meeting of the year in February. And then it looks like, you know, the futures are kind of predicting it stays around that 475 to 5% for the majority of 2023, really through September. Those are the most uh, likely outcomes. Now, it's hard to project out a year, right? You get kind of a spattering of probabilities. But the most probable scenario is that we're still, you know, at or near 5% come September of 2023. That is a, that still is a dynamic change uh, from say just two months ago, what the what this chart looked like. So sorry, I rambled on there a little bit. I just you know that's the headline: five percent for twenty twenty three accelerated rate uh, happening for the rest of this year. There's something that's interesting too. I mean, look, these will move around, and if I look at at one month ago to to a couple months ago, the outlook was dramatically different. And I will tell you that it's going to change again, depending upon what the inflation data comes in at. I, I am. You know, I, I think what's sort of interesting, and you hit on it, is that no longer is the idea that they're going to get to a terminal rate, terminal meaning the last, the highest Fed funds rate that they go to, and then start dropping right away. It looks like maybe the very end of the year, they're pricing in instead of, you know, four and three quarters to 5% to four and a half to four and three quarters percent. By the way, it was much easier when they just had the the one rate, Jay, as opposed to the ranges. But that's a that's a side note. I know at this point, don't you think they could just drop this? Like, I know they adopted it when they went to zero to say they weren't at zero. But at this point, guys, right? Like, can we just get this to be one number? Like, how hard is <laughs> well, that? Well, then to Does it have to do with your whole repo thing? Should you shouldn't because I, I have a half hour of repo, reverse repo topic data to go through. Uh, hey, someone's <laughs> calling me. I got to go. I got to drop. Well, interestingly enough, uh, the Fed, there's Kidding. an effective Fed funds rate. And believe it or not, whatever the Fed fund, the Fed says their ranges, it doesn't mean that the f- actual Fed funds in the market is that. And that's put out by the New York Fed. And that's one of the reasons why they're doing the reverse repos, because the Fed funds rate was threatened to go below their range. And so they had to come in anyway. Like you said, I'll, I'll cover that on my own on another topic. In fact, I've done a whole episode. You, you couldn't help. Yourself. I know. You had to go a little bit. I know. Bit. I love the reverse repo. Who doesn't? Who doesn't? I'll link to an episode <laughs> I did. You can listen to me all talk right. about it for an hour, folks. But all right. So it brings up the question, though. By the way, can I just... Go ahead. I was just going to say, you know, we're talking about the rates at, you know, the potential terminal at 475 to 500 basis points, right? There's a 30% chance that that is even higher, right, at five to five and a quarter of March, May, and, and June. So 
I'm not sure that the terminal is really there. I know it's the most likely uh, outcome, right? There's a 41%, 41% chance, for example, in March that you're at 475 to 500 basis points. But there's a 33% chance you're at 500 basis points, uh, 35% chance at the same period. So it's not a, oh, it's over by then either, right? The, the market is kind of pricing in, so, uh, you know, a little bit of a wide a little bit of a wide channel on this. Well, Jay, I think I sent you a, a graph from uh, John Hussman, and he sort of makes the argument that the Fed isn't even close to pivoting. Uh, he's got a chart, and what he does is he, he shows the federal funds rate just before a pivot, and then he shows what the core inflation, now stay with me here, folks, what the core inflation rate is, and I imagine that's the year-over-year core inflation, uh, PCE. PC inflation, which is the Fed's preferred measure of inflation, plus 0.5 times 4% minus the U.S. unemployment rate. Okay, what the heck does that mean? What it means is our core inflation, you know, if your core inflation rate is, call it 6%, and then you take, and your unemployment rate is 4%, well, then it's like, you know, you, you know where I'm going. Explain this, Jay, for the audience, will you? Do a better job than I am at this. Well, I mean, that, yeah, I mean, this is a little bit of a strange calculation, but essentially what you're talking about here is by the time the Fed reverses or pivots, right? We all know what we mean by a pivot, right? Where the Fed, I think this year, uh, any or not this year, this period, any kind of I stopped raising is a good enough fit, a pivot. Like, hey, we're going to stop raising rates. That's the pivot that everybody's looking for from a, an aggressive hawkish tightening stance. Um, what I would say is, Historically speaking, every time that they've pivoted, this calculation that looks at inflation versus the Fed rate has always been where the Fed has gone past what this inflation, uh, I'm going to call it an inflation-based metric that you were just trying to quote the equation for, which is almost impossible to understand if you're not looking at it. But we are not even close to what that looks like right now, right? Like right now, this number that we would have to be above is, you know, close to, would you say five and a half? right? That uh, the calculation, the core PCE plus yada, 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 right? So we would need to see the Fed funds in excess of that. And when you look back at all the other data points that you've given, they always go past that number, right? They've historically always gone past that number and we're not even close yet. So I think your point is there's a lot more to go. I think we know that from the, from, you know, the data we we're just talking about from the futures and even, you know, by the, by means of this other metric, it tells us they're going to go past the inflation rate. So even though inflation, this kind of inflation-based metric uh, may be coming down, the Fed has to go way past it, right? If, if they're going to follow what they've done. Yeah, I mean, we 4.9% was the core PCE inflation. And you, by the way, you don't get PCE. We just got the CPI and the inflation numbers this week. We will get the, the, the PCE uh, and core PCE. We won't get that till towards the end of the month. But it was 4.9 in August. Uh, I assume it's going to be up in uh, based upon the CPI. And what this is telling me is you either have to have core PCE come down or you have to have unemployment go up a lot to get below the Fed funds rate. Yeah. Yeah. There's a function where they say, look, unemployment's bad. So, okay. And that, that, that uh, equation that you're referencing, employment could force them to kind of act early Unemployment's not a problem right now, right? They they actually feel it's probably 
you know, too tight of a, of a, of a, of a market there. So, yeah, so you, you could get the reversal if you had dramatic unemployment where the Fed goes, OK, we've done enough. We see it in the employment numbers. Inflation is still slow to react. Right. That could be a scenario here. Some of the math in this too, and I and I want to get to because you and I have some thoughts on is the Fed actually doing any anything to help, or are they only harming? Uh, before I come to that, though, there there is this idea of the math starts to matter. And what do I mean by that? Well, whenever you get the year over year and the month over month, what is that? The year over year just says, okay, we just had September CPI. Let's look at the September CPI, which is a basket of stuff, everything from soup to gasoline to nuts and I, I don't know, you know, men's suits, everything in there. And it's all weighted differently. And, and you know, obviously you don't buy as much soup as you do gasoline for your car. But that basket cost 296.761. That's what the CPI index was. And then what you do is you go back to September of 21 and that basket cost 274.214. Okay, a lot of numbers. All it means is year over year, what did it cost a year ago, September? What is it this September? And that's how you get that year over year number. I think it was what, 8.2 is the, uh, was the change. And so the reason why I bring up the match Jay, is it starts to matter because you have what's called base effects. And that's just a fancy way of saying, if the number was really high a year ago, it's got to be really, really high to maintain that sort of 8% year over year. And so, Jay, I, I did some quick back of the envelope math and I said, okay, let's say that CPI kept going up three-tenths of 1%, uh, which is about what it was this time, right? No, it was actually higher, but let's say it's three-tenths of 1%. And all I do is I keep changing it at that constant rate, month over month, three-tenths of 1%. And then at some point, you're like, okay, well, by June of next year, the year over year would wind up being 3.5%, not 8.2%. And so I bring this up because like, you could have 0% change over the next you know, five months. And in January, let's say, you'd still be at 5.3% year over year, but you're not growing at all month over month. So, Jay, I think the math matters here. And at some point, excluding an increase in month over month, and maybe it would be energy or gasoline prices that would get you there, the math starts to matter, right, Jay? Yeah, well, sure. Like, it's kind of because uh, remember, inflation is a rate of change thing, and I won't get too nerdy into calculus stuff, but it's a rate of change over another number. So, you know, you have this base index that you're talking about, and as that goes up, you know, it's harder to make that number go up by more. And uh, because that would mean everybody's paying more. So, yeah, I get it. We're paying more for gas now. We would have to pay the equivalent percentage increase for gas in a year to have the same rate of change on gas. Right. So, you know, I don't remember the the, the breakdown of, 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 you know, gasoline, for example. But the point is, if we're up 30 percent in gas year over year, you need another 30 percent. And so now what are we talking about right at the pump? You're talking about five and a half, five bucks, you know, on the average across the country. And that seems, you know, it's harder to make that happen. Right. I'm not saying it's not going to happen, but it's just harder to make that rate of increase uh, uh, sustainable. So I think what you're saying is, Derek, that, look, if I think there's two points. One even if we start to get some low prints in CPI, we're still going to have this kind of headline year-over-year number that's big because we've just experienced you know, a year of large increases. But I think you're also saying that 
Um, you know, we'll get to a more normalized rate when you see like the 0.2s and 0.3s. You could start to come in at the three and a half kind of a range, four and a half kind of a range as kind of the ongoing rate. Now, we've heard the Fed's target is still 2%. We've heard that, right? They really reiterated that hard the last couple of weeks. And, you know, by that math, we need to see, you know, monthly increases of like 0.1, right? 0.2, 0.1. And nothing has been sniffed out there, especially when it comes to the core, which is hitting at like 0.5, 0.6, right? Which strips out food and energy. So, you know, there's definitely some work to do there. But, you know, the law of large numbers tells us that, you know, inflation will kind of fix itself as long as the rate of increase stops. I think that's right. But you got to yeah, wait. That's right. You got to wait. By the way, just to, and as an aside here, uh, those darn economists, I just was saying, you know, sometimes it's real, sometimes it's nominal. Um, and then sometimes it's year over year, sometimes it's month over month. But like GDP, it's real. It's a real GDP, not nominal. They do have a nominal GDP. But what do they do in GDP when they report it? It's not year over year. It is quarter over quarter, but not just quarter over quarter, but then annualized. <laughs> so anyway, that's uh, I, I, no wonder why like the general public who's not in finance and, and just looks at this every once in a while is like, what the heck is going on? Jay, on, on the core, though, I'm glad you brought that up because one of the things that we've seen is that owner equivalent rents and rents, and I'll explain the difference there in a second, those year over year continue to go up. I know I, I sent you something in the, in the show notes, uh, a slide on that. But one of the, okay, so owner's equivalent rent is basically if you own a house uh, in the 70s and I think it's the early 80s, I don't remember what year they changed it, but they actually used to use for the, the inflation numbers, like the value of your house. And as that got up, went up, uh, inflation went up. In fact, some estimates say that if we still measure it that way, our inflation may have been higher than it was, you know, 40 years ago. But set that aside for a second. The reason why they changed, they said, well, if you own a house, you don't have to like rebuy your house every month. That doesn't make sense. Sure, the cost to maintain it and upgrade it and I'll do all those other things. And, you know, your gas or electric might go up. And so they do a, a survey and they have people in a survey group and they call people up and essentially say, hey, if you rented your house out, what would it go for? I'm oversimplifying it, but that's essentially what it is. Rents are actually people renting a, a, a primary residence. But Jay, the thing with rents and OERs is that these lag. And so you wouldn't go and say, when you measure inflation and rents, you wouldn't say, well, what would it cost today to rent a new apartment? Again, because people are already in leases, so it doesn't make sense. But what happens is, as prices go up and as more and more people come up for lease, it's, it's a lagging indicator. And this is one of the reasons, Jay, we think, uh, you know, I think rents was up 0.8%. OER was up 07 I might have flipped those. But those to continue to go up and core continues to go up. And this kind of leads to the thing where, you know, is the Fed looking at this? But this is going to have a lag effect for the next six months, right? Well, at least six months. When you think about the housing dynamics, and we have a lot of discussion about this in our investment committee, right? Uh, I, I feel like it's a pretty aggressive discussion. Like, you know, look, it's, it's, it's rents are going up. And like you said, they don't get renegotiated because why? Because mortgage rates are going up along with interest rates. I think 
uh, yesterday, one of our guys quoted an 8% mortgage rate, right? Like, hey, look, mortgage rate. Like, it's hard to buy a house right now with where you know you could have got it last year where your rates were. Um, it's hard to spend that. So what are you going to do? Well, if you're moving, you're not going to buy a house and lock in these higher rates, right? You're going to rent. And so like this, this dynamic is, uh, you know, it is going to be a lagging indicator and it's a direct result of higher rates. And this is such a big percentage of the core CPI number, right? Is it close to half, Derek? I, th- I think I know you have the breakdown, but, you know, the, the, the housing cost is a big, big chunk. And it, yeah, and it's going up. Right. And there's there's I mean, it's been going up all year and it looks and it's showing no sign of slowing and higher rates just mean this will go up, too. So it's going to take a while for this to break. Right. For this to kind of curve. And you're right. The Fed should be looking at this, knowing that, hey, OK, a we caused this and b this is not something that, um, you know, shows up in things that people buy every day. And maybe that, you know, the PPI becomes a better indicator than CPI. Uh, PPI being the producer price index, um, that may be a better indicator as to when inflation is really turning. That and and shipping costs. Kidding. No, but seriously, I do think like that'll be. This is going to be a lag, and it's going to hold this up uh, uh, quite a bit. And it's going to. And it looks like it's showing no uh, signs of slowing down. So the the numbers are not going to be. You know, it's going to take a while to start to see those headline numbers that we see. You know, flash across. Uh, our news feed uh, that look in that 0.1, 0.2 range. It's just not going to happen with rents going up at, you know, 7, 7%. One of the things, Jay, too, I wanted to bring up is uh, the idea that there's fiscal and there's the Fed. And I don't want to say the, we'll say the, the 2020 period, because if I say another word, they slap on something to to say that we said a word that describes the the period of February and March of 2020. So anyway, so real personal income, you can measure it two ways. You can look at real personal income, less transfers, that's government stuff, government money, government stimulus checks, and then real, um, you know, just real personal income in total. And I still say that this inflation, in my opinion only, and I'm wrong all the time, was caused by all of this fiscal response, fiscal means sending checks out, the PPP, the the other loans, the you know not having uh, you know, rent forbearance, suspending student loan payments, like all this stuff. And I bring this up because I think a lot of this stuff is getting fixed. Um, like I know uh, uh, something I put in the show notes, Jay, that was uh, from a while ago, but. There's not as much government stimulus right now. In fact, in in January, the student loan things are are due to stop. Jay, I, I just kind of, th- I'm I'm going to go out on a limb and say I don't know that the Fed is helping by raising rates. Like there, it's obviously crushing the real estate sector. And if you wanted to stop the rise in housing, congratulations, you did it. You got rates too. But to me, this still was a supply side and fiscal cause. To the inflation. We had low rates for years and years and years, and we never had inflation. So I'm not sure the Fed is, I mean, they keep going 75 basis points, 75 basis points. Like, guys, call a timeout. I got to call a Dick Vitale. Got to get a TO, baby. Just let's see what happens. I don't know, though. 
Well, yeah, I mean, but look, I think you and I have been talking about that, that it's really hard for the Fed to adjust a supply-driven inflation problem, right? They, you know, like the Fed has zero impact as to what's going on with oil prices due to the European conflict. The Fed didn't have a lot to do with, you know, the ships getting cleared out at, uh, what, what was the number used, 25 miles out, right, uh, waiting to go to port. Right? So all of these things that can push uh, the changes in the supply chain concern. I don't think there's a lot of it that, you know, the Fed can impact. Yes, you're absolutely right. They definitely impacted housing. By the way, they impacted housing to the positive in, you know, March, April of 2020, dramatically, right? I actually think they did a great job of stopping the economy from going into a depression or a really deep recession. But the unwinding of that, look, it lasted too long. Right. We just we continue to you know deliver into 2021 stimulus checks. Um, you know, the, the, it, just, it was too much. Right. And we're unwinding that now. But I don't I'm with you. I don't think that they're actually able to treat the, the disease. Right. I feel like maybe the disease isn't the right word. I don't want to use that. But I feel like they're treating the wrong medical condition. Like I got a broken arm, but the Fed is giving us an enema. Like, I, that just feels like it's the wrong solution to my problem. Sorry I used that on your podcast. But there you go. I said it twice. Uh, uh, so I just – you're right, Derek. I'm not sure that they're really they, – they've, they've brought the, 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 the real estate market to a halt. I get it. Makes sense. And there's all sorts of ripple effects that go along with that, right? All of the new refrigerators and dishwashers that you buy when you get into a new house and – you know, the, the changes that you make, right? There's just this litany of expenses that kick off when you buy a new house. So I agree, they have totally stopped that, but there's other items. Uh, my apologies for the beeping in the background. Derek teases me, there's like a black ops that's, operation going on That's in my the house Fed, right that, that's, but, that's a, <laughs> the alert's going off to the Fed. You're, you're talking bad about Jay Powell. They, they, they're <laughs> listening and they're shutting me off. They're giving me the warning, stop bashing the Fed. I listen, I think they did a great job to help in 2020. Don't get me wrong. I think there was a lot of benefits there, but it clearly- became more government uh, driven and election driven. And, uh, you know, now we're paying the price for the unwinding of it. And I don't think it really matters that much. I'm with you. They hit some small sectors, not small, they hit real sectors, but they, they're, I think they're treating the wrong illness. And at this point, it feels to me that the medicine is worse than the disease, especially when we talk, you know, when you talk about the trend of how things are going here, inflation is probably going to fix itself anyway, right? Just because of that law of large numbers regardless of all the pain that we have to feel and pain being a word that the Fed has used, which that was interesting, right? You want to comment on that in that uh, Jackson Hole speech? Yeah. Well, pain, you know, Mick, Mick uh, Brokaw, uh, one of the members of the investment committee brought up the fact that if you are a home builder right now, you probably just want to finish building what you want to build and you want to get it out there. And then are they going to keep building after that? Probably not. And then what does that do to a construction worker whose primary income is building houses? Like the point that that he lays out is is a good example in the economy. Like what the Fed does does have real consequences. Like the, and I know, you know, maybe economists sometimes just look at the numbers, but you know, I think it's it could be harmful in some areas. And housing is is the clearest one to me. I mean, if you're at a, at a two and a half or three percent thirty year fixed mortgage, are you going to move? Are you going to need a real estate agent anytime soon? Are you going to refinance your mortgage? I don't think so. And this has real consequences for people. So, 
you know, you break stuff when you start to raise rates. I guess though, like if I'm Jay Powell and I got to go in front of the microphones, could he actually get up there and say, yeah, I don't think anything we can do will fix inflation. It's got to fix itself. I mean, sometimes doing nothing is better than doing something, but I, I don't think he can do that. I don't think he would survive politically. I don't think, you know, and, and the government sometimes does stuff they think is helping. It's not helping. I don't know, Jay, but. Uh, how many times have we said the best trade we could have made was no yeah. trade at all, right? Sometimes that's the case. And uh, I get why they can't sit on their hands entirely here. But uh, look, they're giving, they're giving people a chance to reset a little bit on certain things. Uh, I won't get into, I mean, maybe let's talk about it for a second, right? Do we think we're going to impact earnings, right? What have we always talked about? The two things that drive the market, let's tie this back to stock prices real quick, right? Things that drive the market, inflation, uh, sorry, interest rates, okay? Those definitely are going to impact, you know, how people decide to allocate and corporate earnings. And, you know, we will see if corporate earnings are impacted this month, right? We saw earnings this morning uh, out of the banks, and most were good. Most beat, despite lower loans, as you just mentioned, uh, and despite trading volume being down, their net interest income, NIM, was good. So, you know, as earnings go, this will be interesting to see the earnings results for Q3, which we're going to see in Q4, which is now, you know, have they really impacted earnings yet? And I think that's going to be an interesting story. I don't think there's much of an argument that they're going to be coming down but are they going to be coming down to the point where we start have to start to you know price in a reduction of earnings? I'm not sure yet. Let's see. And that's really, I think, the, one of the things the Fed is trying to do, right? Because then it does things like tighten up the job market, people get laid off, and you can start to fill all those open job, uh, those job openings, right? All of those dynamics. Right? We'll see. Yeah, and the, the financial earnings, it's really interesting because going into today, some of the, the forward PE multiples and PE is courses – uh, the, the price to E, the earnings. I mean, Citigroup was five and a half forward their price. I mean, that's, that's kind of low, I think. Uh, Goldman, I think, was a little bit over seven. Uh, JP Morgan was nine or 10, somewhere around there. I think the financials as a whole are 10 forward PE. Their earnings come out today, just they beat. And they didn't, there wasn't anything crazy in the guide. As you said, you know, the net interest margins came up, a lot of the other stuff came down. Year over year, I think a lot of the banks were still down, you know, 15, 20, 25% year over year at the second quarter in a row that were down year over year. But yeah, I mean, like, if you liked the banks a year ago and now they're trading a lot cheaper, like that's, I always go back to everyone like back last year was like, oh, the market's too high. The market's too high. Like it's cheaper now. It really is. But to your point, Jay, as long as earning hold up, and I always, I mean, people forget this. You can have stocks go down because earnings are going down. That happens. The past two years, and yeah, I'm including last year too, which was up. The multiple that people were willing to pay was down. And this year, the multiple is down, but earnings are up. And that's important to remember, right, Jay? Yeah, it is. Um, so the question comes out, so why is the stock market down 25%, right, if earnings are actually growing this year? The multiple is one of the is definitely the most obvious answer, right? Hey, contraction in the multiple. People aren't willing to pay up as much. They're less optimistic about future earnings. But I'll also throw out there that the market is a forward-looking vehicle, right? And the returns in the S and P that you see today are probably a reflection of what the economy is doing in six to nine months from now, 
right? So the, just remember the market is usually ahead of things uh, on the up and downside. And, and there's an argument to be made that once we start to see earnings pull back, the market's already figured out that, well, six to nine months from now, we'll have kind of a bottom in the earnings uh, recession. I'll say earnings recession. And you could see the market rising in the face of a declining uh, uh, earning environment, right? So again, those two things don't always line up day to day. Usually they don't. Usually the market's ahead of things. The stock market, at least, is usually ahead of things. So, you know, think through that a little bit as to how to interpret what's going on now. We've probably already paid the price for some of the decline in earnings that we'll see in 2023. I mean, that to me is what the market is telling us. I mean, look, looking back, whether it's 02, 09, uh, you know, you go, I, you know, 97, 98 really wasn't, that was the, uh, the Asian contagion. But yeah, I mean, March of 09, earnings weren't growing yet, but the market bottomed. Like you said, it, it saw the future a little bit. And uh, it, Remember the green shoots? It's all green shoots. That, that was, was the term we saw we used in 2009. Green shoots. That's right. It was because some company had a, an earnings beat. Green shoots. Yeah, we'll see the same. All thing. right. Well, I we'll roll that. I think uh, to Jay Powell. Here's my open letter to Jay Powell. Who is it? The the Ark, uh, uh, Kathy Wood. She wrote an open letter to Kathy Wood. Yep. So th- this is my open letter. My open speech to Jay Powell. Jay, stop. Go on vacation for a while. Just cancel your next two meetings. And, uh, you know, you can just kind of do that. All right, Jay. So I think we've, uh, that's, I think I'm done talking to Jay Powell. Go on vacation. Do less. All right. So by the way, I got to give a shout out to uh, our uh, Professor Siegel. I, I, I forgot I pre-ordered his uh, Stocks for the Long Run. He has his latest edition out. I probably pre-ordered it like two months ago and it came the other day and I was like, oh yeah. And it's it's a good book. It also shows just how good stocks have been over the on a real basis compared to things like gold, bonds, bills, and the US dollar, which continues to lose. Uh, so that that's always, if you're a market historian, that's a good book to pick up. But Jay, I'll send it over to you. Any recommendations this week? Yeah, well, look, I, uh, so, by the way, Professor Siegel has been pretty vocal about the rents thing that we just talked about, the real estate thing with inflation, right? And the Fed needs to pay attention to it. So uh, I think he's got, you know, as always, the finger on the pulse. I, you know, I'm just always, I'm glad when our, our opinion lines up with his super smart guy. Um, yeah, look, my recommendation, I got a good one and a bad one. So, uh, as a star Wars child, right. I, I saw the first star Wars in theaters in 1977, like eight times. I was one of those kind of kids. Um, I like the Andor series that came out. Uh, uh, it's about Cassie and Andor, who's kind of the rebel from, uh, rogue one, which arguably is the best star Wars movie. I'm happy to have an argument with anybody about how great that that movie is. If you disagree, arguably one of the best star Wars movies. So I think Andor is good. I have been disappointed with the fourth or fifth season of Cobra Kai on Netflix. It's okay. Right. I feel like, you know, they're really dragging it out. I'm hoping they finish it all up this year, but, uh, had to, so one good, one bad for me. Yeah. So I will just say Cobra Kai. I watched that originally when, when Google TV before they shut down their their streaming channel, and I had to like subscribe to it, and somebody told me about it. I'm like, really? I'm like, this is awesome. Season one was great. I haven't watched the other season. Season one, season yeah. two, great. They were good, but it's I feel like they've run it too long, and I can't blame Netflix because it is what it is. You run it till it's dead. 
It's a it's a money maker. Now on Rogue One, I will tell you, I saw that with my son in the movie theater, having no idea what was going to happen at the end. And I'm just gonna, you know, if if you haven't seen Rogue One yet, you know, I'll forgive you for shutting off right now. But when Darth Vader shows up at the end and just tunes up <laughs> that that ship, and that's the exact uh, like linkage. Like end of Rogue One, and you could watch the start of the the original Star Wars, A New Hope, back to back, and it's one thing together. That was amazing to me. I was people were cheering in the movie theater. Yeah. Oh yeah. When when he smoked all the rebels on that ship, it's great. Yeah. I, yeah. I say he was tuning him up. That's like a, a a New York term. You know, he was giving a tune up to the guys. Yeah. You know. But yeah, I mean, you got your wrenches. <laughs> that, but that was amazing. People were cheering in the theater, and then obviously Princess Leia, you know, through um, uh, what was it, the little CGI, CGI work. yeah, at the end, like people were characters. But they, they, yeah. I, well, anyway, this Andor series is the prequel of how that Rebel Cassian Andor kind of comes to pass. So I'm like six episodes through. It's it's definitely worth watching. All right. I did watch uh, Greatest Beer Run Ever on uh, Apple TV+. Plus. I thought it was good. I thought it was a good watch. Um, okay. So, I haven't got to it yet. It's on my list. But my recommendation is Drive to Survive. It's a series on Netflix. It's about four seasons, about F1, Formula One racing. And it's not just like... They do like a really good job, and it's entertaining, and it's it's more personal with the drivers and stuff like that. And I hadn't really watched F1 for a long time. I watched that. And then I started watching F1 racing again. And it's it's really... I did the exact same thing. I agree. High recommendation for Drive to Survive. Yep. Actually, Brett, one of our guys on staff, turned me on to it. I think it was great. Yeah, I agree. And yeah, the only thing with, with living on the West Coast or, or Pacific Coast time zone is some of these F1 races are on at odd times. Like the Japan race was on at 10 at night, which was, of course, the next day in Japan. Some of them were on at 4 in the morning, but it's it's pretty good. Well, it's amazing. They race around the world. It's so cool. Like, I can't imagine living that life. Like, okay, this week we were in Monaco. Next week we're in Singapore. Like, you got to move the whole thing. It's It looks like an amazingly interesting existence, right? So I'm with you, Derek. It happens all over. Well, could you imagine? Like, you and I used to travel every week you know, back to when the, uh, the, the traders expos at TD Ameritrade and the, uh, the actor, you know, trader events and everything like that. And yeah, like, you know, you'd look at your schedule and say, all right, I'm in Miami, then Seattle, then here, but they're like Singapore, Sydney, Austin, Texas, Paris. I mean, they're all over the place. It's kind of amazing. So it's, yep. it, it is crazy. All right, Jay, let's, uh, let's call it there. Of course, uh, do send me emails for recommendations. Uh, Derek.more at zegafinancial.com, D-E-R-E-K dot M-O-O-R-E at Z's and Zebra, E is an A, G is in George, A is an Apple. Financial's up to you to spell correctly. Uh, Jay, thanks again for coming on. Uh, hopefully, Jay Powell listens to us. And uh, we'll see you on a future episode. Thank you, Derek. See you, everyone. <laughs>